You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 128 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Connor Johnnen. Today, I am lucky to be joined by Dr. Alex Garcia Putnam and Christine Howling. Dr. Garcia was on episode 82 and is currently the assistant state physical anthropologist for the state of Washington. Christine Howling is a bioarchaeologist and works currently for the Louisiana Department of Justice as an anthropologist. I'm very excited to have both of you on because bioarchaeology is critically underrepresented in our podcast so far. So, we're very excited to have you on. How are you both doing on this lovely Sunday? Doing good. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, definitely. So our, our general MO of this podcast is that we like to hear about people's trajectory, how they kind of gotten into anthropology, first memories. So Christine, what was like your first memory or first encounter with anthropology or like bones uh, when you were growing up? Yeah. So well, my family tells me that apparently the first time I broke my wrist, which was, I was like five years old. I bought a book on bones and said all 206 bones memorized, but that is not really what got me into archeology. span I went in high school. I was probably already kind of non-traditional and decided to take a mythology class for my English class instead of any sort of other type of history class or English class. And I was fortunate enough to go on a spring break to Greece. And back then it was it's like the year 2000 and I was like 15, 16 years old and they're still doing some stuff on their, um, on their subway system and whatnot. And all of a sudden you're seeing all of this archeological material behind these glass cases in the subway system and throughout all of the archeology span sites that would be visited there. I was just like, wait, you can dig in the dirt and that's a job. You can do that. I want to figure out how to do that. me into archaeology going to school for that. Very, very cool. So you grew up in, in Minnesota. Is that why you kind of stayed in state to ultimately study anthropology? Yeah, I grew up in Minnesota. So in the, in the Twin Cities area, and there's a couple of schools nearby in Wisconsin and Minnesota that are, are pretty anthropology heavy for the And I ended up really enjoying, I went to school at in Mankato, Minnesota, Southern Minnesota. I just really enjoyed it. I liked it being a small program. I'm usually a little bit on the shy and quiet side. So having a, a smaller setting where I wasn't just one of a thousand faces felt really a lot more comfortable to me. So going to a smaller school for anthropology really just made me feel a lot more comfortable. But there are some fantastic bioarchaeologists that work in Cato and in St. Paul, Minnesota, in Ham at Hamlin University, and so I was lucky enough to work with a few bioarchaeologists out there as well that really encouraged and kind of fostered my love for bioarchaeology and studying human bones. So, and and then you decided to continue on into the the world of acad- academia, or at least start that journey um, at the University of Indianapolis. I did take some time off. Uh, I was just doing odd jobs and lived in Chicago for a year because. Why not? And I wanted to see if I could handle being, a, you know, working in forensic anthropology since forensic anthropology works with the recent dead. Um, I had experience on bioarchaeology side. And actually in between the summers before I started grad school, I was 
going and working on some digs in Greece. So I was doing a bioarchaeology field program in Greece. And then I went back and ran the total station my second summer out in Greece. And then I started grad school for my master's degree, which is the program is called human biology. They didn't want anybody to be too pigeonholed into forensic anthropology. And at the time at university of Indianapolis, it was forensic anthropology and archeology. span They were all one program back then. Now they're separated. So you can do a separate archeology span masters at that school. But at the time they were together. So I kind of got to do the best of both worlds and I got to do active forensic anthropology casework in the state of Indiana and Illinois, but then also got to do a lot of bioarchaeology driven coursework. And I managed to stumble into working with the Campsville Archaeological Project. And so I worked um, in the summers then as eventually I was first, I was an intern, but then lab director for the bioarchaeology field school in Campsville. So I, I got to do a lot of really fun things for a while there that stemmed from me going to school in Indianapolis. Very cool. And how did you two meet each other? How did you both end up? Was it you both end up in Louisiana? Is that how? Yeah, it, it's a classic. You're at a conference and you, know, you may make a new friend and, you know, five minutes in, I think Kelly was just, your wife was just starting to make that transition to LSU. And so what else do you do? But invite people you met for five minutes to come stay at your really shitty apartment (laughs) so that they can find a place to stay. (laughs) Yeah, actually. And you guys have had Alex Crabe on the program at least once. And he was who introduced the two of us. Uh, So, but yeah, so we met at the SAAs and we were just about to move to Baton Rouge and, and having a friend down there to get started was, was amazing. As she said, uh, we crashed in her apartment when we were house hunting and, and also, you know, and then for me, it was, I was just looking for something to do and, and some archaeology friends and, you know, and it was great to have someone to bounce ideas off of. And the real stroke of luck for me was uh, my research got shut down during the pandemic and I reached out to Christine and I was like, you guys got anything? I like would love to spit spitball some ideas, would love to just to chat. And she was like, we have a huge project that we can't deal with. It's, it's too large for us on, you know, with all of our caseload, would you like to, to kind of come and think about handling that and talk and, and working with that? And that ended up being the, the skeletal collection. I, I kind of based my dissertation around. Very, very fortunate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And being able to do a lab based dissertation with an existing collection that what they weren't able to kind of spend the time they wanted to on was a great way to, to get through the pandemic and was uh, enabled me to kind of move forward with my career without hitting a huge two, three year pause button. Yeah. And it was great that Alex also already had interest in the topic too, in terms, not just his skills, but he was interested in sort of the, the dynamics of that population and what he could do with it. And we were just really thankful and knowing now what happened a few months later is that, our disaster response work started to kick up, it still would be sitting there. And we're just so thankful that Alex could come in and, and work on it because otherwise it would still be sitting. And I think that's a that's something we don't talk about a lot in bioarchaeology, but letting collections sit and not get dealt with 
is actually a, a bigger failing, I think, than to say, well, we've got it. You know, we can deal with it. They've been dead for how long? They can wait a little bit longer. No, let's just get it done and get them so we can make some decisions about how we need to move forward and handle these situations. And since he's done all this really wonderful work, now we can deal with that. Yeah, it was it was pretty incredible being being able to work straight through the pandemic as well. I was fortunate. It was a very big, very commingled collection. So I needed a large space. Uh, and they just took over a conference room in their office. I had this massive conference room to myself. I felt very lucky. Taking over two more offices now. I have a whole dedicated table in a closed oh. room. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. No, I mean, they're... It's interesting. So they're in the Department of Justice. And so it's there's a lot of people around that office that don't really know what goes on in the, you know, and I, we, I'm glad that we had a sign on the door saying, you know, you know, I think it said something to the effect of like human remains, please be respectful, like door remains locked kind of thing. But yeah, we since I work with mostly attorneys, I, the other really wonderful thing about having a friend like Alex come in and work is all of a sudden I have somebody else to talk to and, you know, actually discuss human remains issues with, because it's mostly just me and my boss most of the time and having somebody else interested in like, Hey, what's this weird thing? I don't know. Let's talk about this one. Made it really, really fun to have somebody else around and do that kind of stuff with. So, so like in my perception of, and my small knowledge of knowing bioarchaeologists, it seems like it's a very small group, kind of tight-knit group of folks. Like, I don't, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of people who do specifically bioarchaeology. Did, is that, does that ring true or is it kind of a, a bigger community or? It's, it's growing. If you look at the numbers from the SAA, the big archaeology, the bioarchaeology interest group, big it has one of the largest concentrations of, of folks registered with them in that interest group. So it feels kind of big sometimes, actually, I think in our small world, but I guess it's in the grand scheme of, and I, a lot of people I know and friends with, they're all bioarchaeologists. So it feels like there's a lot of us out there, <laughs> but it probably really isn't as big as we think it is. Yeah, it's- it's interesting also, I, I think it's, so it's a growing field. I feel like every year there's more and more and more grad students pushing for, for bioarchaeology. I think forensic anthropology was really hot five, six, seven years ago. And I think a li- that may be kind of transferring over to bioarchaeology. I know we kind of both started thinking that we wanted to do forensics. I actually, and my master's research was, was forensic anthropological. And I, and very glad that I went bioarchaeology for my PhD and for my career. But I think that's, that's happening more and more. Yeah. That, or, I mean, I, there's some definite overlap too. I feel like, oh, yeah. um, you know, even some of the work I do, although it is not forensic anthropology in kind of a typical sense, because it is recent human remains and not actually biowork. It kind of walks this weird line between forensics and historic and bioarch it's this very kind of blurred field that some of us I think find ourselves into and 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 that's okay I mean it is what it is but I think there's some definite there's we're finding there's more overlap than there it used to feel like a really distinct line it did one or the other but now I think it's a lot more intertwined (laughs) is that like the do you think like the 
excitement from the forensic anthro- or for the an- forensic anthropology stuff is like the like a bones thing from the TV show or something like that. Cause I, I feel like I knew a lot of people who were like, I want to be exactly like bones, you know, doing that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I tell people too. I'm like, I wish we had some of that technology, but that's just TV. <laughs> <laughs> I get that we, a lot. We sit in a, in a closed room, usually in a basement and there are no holograms and like there, you know, 3d renderings. You're just, working by yourself usually in a very dark room. <laughs> I will also say in all those shows, like the, the classic CSI phones, they always have like uh, light tables. Those are really terrible to work on. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, they don't work that way. And I can't say um, I've ever actually used one. <laughs> I mean, I've used one for like art stuff and it, it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't, it doesn't work for, well it's 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 always so dark in there too it's like that doesn't seem comfortable to me like dealing with human remains and like doing it in like a dark room seems like a a recipe for disaster doing any (laughs) archaeology yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely Oh, no, I, I think there was a huge spike in the like the forensic anthropology majors when that show became really popular, I think if memory serves, I, I, I saw a graph at one point that like it showed that that perfect spike following Bones's popularity. Just for folks who are not really in tune with or don't know what the difference between forensic anthropology and bioarchaeology, what would you just call them? What would you describe the difference as? One is a, a legal application. So like um, forensic anthropology, you're, you're more likely to be involved in current missing persons, cases, homicides, all sorts of things that could go into a legal context in that regard. Whereas bioarchaeologists are, are typically dealing with the much more, at least past historic mark of human remains. And so I, I guess that's the way I would draw a distinction between the two of them. Yeah. I mean, our methodologies are very similar and, you know, we're looking at kind of similar markers on the human skeleton to answer similar questions, Right looking at the basic demographics of, you know, the a skeletal population or, or, a, or a single individual, right? In forensic anthropology, the goal is an attempted identification of this individual, right? Whereas in bioarchaeology, you're looking more, especially when you have like a skeletal sample, right? A large, a large sample, you're looking more at the demographics of that group to learn something about a past population. Cool. And at this moment, I think we're going to take a little break. This is episode 128 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We will be right back. Welcome back to episode 128 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We have Dr. Alex Garcia Putnam and Christina Howling, and we're talking about bioarchaeology. I wanted to start off this segment just asking you what you do for your job, because you, you have similar jobs, but different titles, I would say. Yeah, sure. So I work for the state of Washington for the uh, Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation, and I am their assistant state physical anthropologist. If it were up to me, I consider myself a bioarchaeologist. Uh, that's what my training's in. That's what my, my research is, was in. And the title physical anthropologist just is a, is a kind of more broad title. It's also slightly um, kind of an older, older turn of phrase within the field of what we are now biological anthropology. But yeah, my job is to work on all human remains finds that are non-forensic on state, private, and public land. 
I work on a lot of things that would not fall under NAGPRA, for instance. Uh, so these are things that fall under our kind of local state jurisdiction. And I work on native human remains that get found from construction. I work on historic remains, as well as things like medical um, specimen turnovers. One of the kind of more common things that happens is someone is cleaning out their uncle's garage and he was a doctor and they find his old medical specimens and they don't know what to do with them. And, and those will come to us and we will kind of put them through our, our process. Uh, the goal for us is, is really rapid repatriation, working with tribes uh, and other local groups to kind of get things back to their, into a respectful burial or, or, or whatever disposition uh, the folks want. So, And you guys have a very strong relationship with tribes um, and it's a very involved process with them, right? Yeah, it's a very collaborative process with, uh, uh, with the tribes across Washington state. And it's, it's something that uh, my supervisor has worked for a long time to, to build with those tribal members. And it's, um, I've only been in the position for about a year. So I still very much feel like I'm learning the ropes and I'm constantly meeting new people and, and working with, with new tribes and, and new areas of the state. Uh, Washington is huge and remarkably diverse geographically and culturally. And it's been incredible to kind of move across the state and, uh, you know, help this help with this process and kind of make it go as smoothly as possible. That's kind of our end goal. And Christine, you you have a different job title, but work in a kind of a similar capacity in Louisiana? Yeah. So in Louisiana, my job started sort of more broadly as titled research associate. It was just a, a position that my boss, who is an attorney, as well as an archaeologist, was sort of able to help develop as more and more of these issues were being handled by the state and needed some sort of intervention and who could do that better than somebody who's working at the attorney general's office. So in my position, then, then after I'd been there for a few years, we decided that we needed to change the title so that it reflected more accurately what it is that we actually do. So I am the anthropologist on staff at the attorney general's office, and that is the only one that exists in the United States. There are no other anthropologists in attorney general's offices anywhere else. And similar to Alex, I mean, Alex's job is, is going to be a hand. It's probably the only one that's titled what it is, but also it's one of a handful state level positions that are going to exist across the United States. And so I, I similarly deal with all kind of cemetery issues and human remains issues that come up for the state. Most of the time, and yeah, non-forensic, because we have LSU and they do all the forensic casework, who we work with pretty often, actually. So we're, we're usually communicating about a lot of casework regardless. But anything that people don't really know what to do with, it comes to us for a disposition. So it's the same kind of idea of like, okay, we have this issue. We have an issue of cemetery desecration. Well, because we're situated within, um, and this is just the way Louisiana is structured, but the Attorney General's office has investigators in-house and, and whatnot. So we work with folks that will, you know, help us get warrants if need be and help us deal with recovery of human remains if there's not voluntary turnover. And that's partially what my job started out of was to stop human remains trafficking. So Louisiana, again, because of its sort of unique situation, both in that they have above ground tombs that get damaged and Human remains can be, you know, pulled out of them pretty easily. It also happens to have, because New Orleans is thought of as kind of this funky, dark vampire, you know, kind of odd 
character of a city, people come there and have come there to specifically sell and auction off human remains. And in Louisiana, that is explicitly illegal. So we were definitely very heavy into dealing with stopping people selling human remains when I first um, started this job. That's kind of dropped off now that people know it's illegal to sell human remains in Louisiana. <laughs> so we see kind of a, we've had kind of a different changeover, but still have a lot of cemetery issues that we deal with. So if in those cases, when these cemeteries or above ground burials uh, are released through storm, whatever happens, what does that kind of process look like um, on your end? Louisiana, you know, gets gets hit pretty often with some some significant storms. In the last two years, we had actually in one calendar year, we had four major hurricanes hit the state of Louisiana, in addition to a lot of other smaller storms that also hit Louisiana. But yeah, we had four major hurricanes hit in one calendar year, and so what happens is that oftentimes those cemeteries that have above ground burials. They're usually in what's called a burial vault. It looks very much like a concrete container or a mausoleum. That would be a structure that would be like two or three grave spaces tall by, you know, maybe five or 10 down in, you know, rows and columns. They're above ground. And when these storms hit, I don't think people understand necessarily the amount of force that sometimes that water has. I mean, they move entire houses. So two to 6,000 pound volts is not going to stop the water. So the water will hit these structures and then either eject the entire vault or eject the casket from that vault um, or mausoleum and send them flood uh, really like anywhere within the water. And so um, I think in one of our storms in 2020, we found um, a casket that we recovered up to eight miles away from what we, the nearest cemetery. We don't even know if it's, related to that cemetery. And then similarly in 2021 with other storms, they went across bayous, across, you know, a a good probably mile or two away from their cemeteries at minimum. And we're still kind of working on some of that, but that disaster storm response is something we've become a lot more involved with um, with some of our recent legislation changes at the state. So um, I'm one of uh, the members of the statewide cemetery response task force. There's a small group of us that do all of the reinterments for all the remains that get displaced in storms. So that hurts my brain that they're moving that far. I mean, but like you said, with the amount of force that is in and water movement, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It does some truly astounding things. We have one that, so sometimes the vaults are double stacked. So one on top of another, and they usually have, concrete around securing them together but we actually have one where the bottom came out the top one sat down and it just makes your brain go how did the bottom one it and this one still stay but it did and it's it's sort of it's really hard to conceive but water does strange things and I don't think if I mean I am not a hydrologist by any means I've done a little bit of work on water movement but it's astounding to see some of the things that we see and goes to show you, I think there's a lot more recognition now of how important it is to pay attention to storm warnings, <laughs> how important it is to take care of yourself and get out of places, <laughs> which wasn't, didn't used to exist in, you know, in earlier storms. Oh, it's just a hurricane. It'll be fine. 
I left Louisiana. I officially moved out of Louisiana as an evacuee from <laughs> Ida in 2021. So that was how I, I packed my car up and, and took off uh, and moved to Washington. Mm-hmm. When, and that storm season was crazy as well because they stacked on top of each other. And I can so I can imagine dealing with three storms that have if memory serves that storm season, they were back to back to back. Yeah, it's for people who don't live in Louisiana in the end of August 2020, we had Hurricane Laura, which was actually coupled with Hurricane Marco at the same time. They were both developing right off Louisiana. And then about six ish weeks later in early October, the exact same location that got hit by Laura got hit by Hurricane Delta. Then later that year, just before the end of hurricane season, New Orleans area got hit by Hurricane Zeta. It's so all the way into Z. And then I, almost a year exactly later, August of 2021, Ida hit the southern, just it came on land uh, south of New Orleans in the Plaquemines and Jefferson Parish areas and stuff. So it's it, it truly has affected those those storms have affected the entire coastline of Louisiana from east to west. So we're working in the westernmost parishes on Laura and Delta storm response, and we're still we're going to be dealing with that for a long time. But I'm just wrapping up some stuff from we had a big storm system sit on us in 2016 that caused 800 and some graves disruptions in the middle of the state. We are still closing out one cemetery from that. So. It's a, it's a long-term project. We're, we're in it for the long haul. So now that had Cameron Parish in the very west of Louisiana, had um, Laura, Delta, the whole state. And then we had Zeta and Ida on the eastern side of the state, all within one calendar year, which is crazy. I mean, I've lived here now since, I moved down here in 2014. My first storm experience was a very strange flooding event in 2016, but then I, I didn't really experience any major hurricanes until 2020 and we've just been going ever since and keeping our fingers crossed. So. Well, and, and the, the other thing that I didn't realize when I moved down to Louisiana is that even the other storm systems, the, the non-hurricane storm systems can cause serious flooding and serious damage. That 2016 flood was not associated if memory serves with a, with a hurricane. We had, in 2020, severe flooding in Baton Rouge, not related at all to a hurricane, uh, just big storm systems moving through. Um, yeah, that 2016 one was just such a fluke of a big rain system sat and dropped. Um, it's just because it stalled and it stalled over the Amy River and it dropped 30 plus inches of water within like 48 hours. It was just wow. And because of that area, and again, a lot of the development and change that's happened to Louisiana, you know, after Katrina, a lot of folks moved out, um, up to Baton Rouge development kind of exploded up there. And then has since been, you know, kind of this balancing act between the two cities, but with so much development happening in the Baton Rouge area, if the water gets backed up in that particular basin and the, by the Amy river, there's just nowhere for the water to go. And so I ended up backing up. I got displaced three nights in a row, <laughs> every place I went got flooded out and it was, wow. it was insane. It was a truly insane experience, but it gives you a lot of insight into how the water works in Louisiana. It gives you a lot of insight into what 
everybody's dealing with, with, um, you know, trying to get their, their uh, lives back on track with the assistance of FEMA or uh, with their insurance, because, you know, now I've, I've had to deal with that. So um, gives you a lot of empathy for what people are dealing with. So if I can take something off their plate, which is what our office does, or we attempt to, we work with FEMA and all these families to help get their loved ones recovered. And then knowing that we were in a new storm season, we got them all safe and mobile. So if we, a storm does happen to hit us in the next couple of months, and knock on wood there, <laughs> then we can get them out and get them to safety and they won't be displaced by a, another storm. Um, that was really important to us. We wanted to make sure that people weren't have to worry that this was going to happen again this year. I'm not saying it's never going to happen again. It probably will, <laughs> but not this year until we get them reinterred. So we got that all worked out. So we're moving into the next phases of, of all this um, identification work and trying to get people's loved ones put back where they should be. So in, in terms of reinterment, are you guys an advisor or how, how do we solve these problems with cemeteries, human remains coming out from the ground? You know, I know it happens in Washington as well. How, what's like the, the best solution? Well, then other states are having to grapple with this as well. I know that, you know, with the recent dry spells in some states and then getting this tremendous amount of water, graves are eroding out in places that they don't usually come out of. All I can say is really every situation is unique. It's, there is no one size fits all answer, unfortunately, but, and so in Louisiana, our best recommendation is put them underground, put them underground uh, as under as much dirt as possible. And they don't come up from beneath the ground now saying all that with the great assault that I just said that things are eroding out in other states, <laughs> but generally speaking, that helps um, get them below ground. But it's a, it's a simple answer to a complex issue of who's got the money to do it. Well, in these cases, a lot of times they, uh, families can't afford it. They're getting FEMA assistance to do this. And FEMA allows for that under their individual assistance guidelines, but FEMA doesn't like to mitigate necessarily. So they want things back to where they were. Well, if they're back to where they were, the next storm, we're just going to be doing this again. And so, and we have examples of that. Uh, poor family member we talked to after Laura, that was the third storm her grandma had been injected from her grave in. It was right after, so after Katrina Rita hit in Cameron Parish, and they had Ike, and then they had Laura Delta. And every time her grandma came up and she was, I'm done with this. I gotta, I've got to do something different. And so who's going to pay for it? That's a really tough thing. And so if there is no money for mitigation and fixing some of these issues, we're just going to keep doing it over and over again. So I think that's a that's an area that everything needs to kind of revolve around with that in mind. But sometimes you're, you're caught in a loop for a while that you can't see your way out of. And I think that's definitely something we're always looking for an answer to, but it's, it's just unfortunately not that simple. Yeah. And like Christine said, for us in Washington, every case is, is very unique. Um, but one of the kind of very unifying things for us, and again, echoing Christine, is erosion is a massive problem. There's a tremendous, there's a huge population living in the Puget Sound area in the state of Washington, right? Massive population centers, lots of building increased storm activity due to changing climates. 
I only foresee my job getting more hectic as we keep encroaching on our coastal environments and as we keep and as you know as the uh, as storm seasons potentially get worse and worse. So it's I you know we're we're seeing similar things here as well. My work is much more individually based. Typically, it's you know a single interment, less large scale cemetery work like that. Thankfully, because we already have enough on our plate. <laughs> I think on that note, we are going to end this segment and we will catch you in the next one. Welcome back to episode 128 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, we're here, we're talking BioArk, and this is going to be a really simple question. So what can you find out by studying bones? What can you find about find out about people in, in the past? The very first thing you know about a skeleton is that that person died. And you'd be surprised how complicated that makes things when you're looking at skeletal samples versus trying to think about what a past living population was. So that and that that gets into some really complicated, more conceptual issues that we will not get into today. But the kind of the bread and butter bioarchaeology and and forensic anthropology, for that matter, is the the the, um, the biological profile of of an individual. That is their age. Uh, that's the age that they died their biological sex. Uh, we are talking here about the skeletal indicators uh, that show the differences between males and females. Not, we're not talking about gender here. That's a much trickier thing to get at archaeologically. And also, and historically, the biological profile was also concerned with a person's ancestry. And that is kind of fraught with ethical and methodological issues, but it still certainly does get done the goal in forensics is to identify an individual, and the goal in bioarchaeology is to learn um, about a past population. Yeah, aside from those sort of basics in uh, biological profile, we can also separate things that are pathological in nature, something that somebody developed in their lifetime if it left a marker on bone, versus something that happens, it's taphonomy, some, anything that happens after they died to us looking at them in person. So we do a lot of, we spend a lot of time trying to distinguish, is this cortical bone erosion due to interment issues? So like, because they were near some water or there was a lot of shifting soil around them, which causes this outer layer to kind of come off gently, or is it something that's erosive or um, pathological in nature? And so, um, but things like, uh, you know, was this damage caused while it was interred from uh, plant roots or a tree root or something versus something that happened in the lab and it broke by accident in the lab, you know, something, it was fragile and it broke. We can distinguish those two types of taphonomic issues. So a, a lot of it's trying to, what are we really looking for and what can we eliminate being concerned about necessarily, or are we worried about the taphonomy? Do we want to, you know, I can write a lot on taphonomy, <laughs> but it's not the most interesting things. <laughs> Christine and I are both very interested in, in pathology, right? In ancient disease um, and what we can see of those diseases on the human skeleton. Health is such a complicated thing. Your health is so much more than uh, the diseases you accrue throughout your lifetime, right? Things like emotional health and, and mental health, we can't assess that from the human skeleton, right? So we're looking at this tiny little piece of human health in the past. And of the 
you know, of that, you know, the kind of medical health side of things, not all that many diseases impact the human skeleton in particular ways. And even the ones that impact your your human skeleton in broad ways, those still kind of tricky to kind of parse out. So it's one of the things that we both do is work in the historic period, uh, which gives us the opportunity to compare back to historical records, uh, which really helps us solve some of those mysteries. Yeah, certainly some of the uh, the things you see on a regular basis. Is it is it systemic? Is it something that was happening across the body? Is it something that was happening just very localized? What could it possibly? Sometimes there's a lot of research and guessing and looking at clinical research to see is there anything that approximates this? And so going back just for a second to some of my educational background, the reason I, I was really thankful for my master's degree in human biology is that we spent a lot of time doing anatomy and learning what muscles, what features, what, you know, and so it, it connects the living mechanisms to the actual bones that we're studying. And so it lets you also kind of get into that mindset of, okay, you know, if we're looking at this particular joint, what are the pressures that are being put on that, on that bone or in that region? What could this possibly be able to hypothesize a little bit more? And, and I think that that's, I think that's why that keeps a lot of us still interested in pathology is that there's always going to be something a little bit different. And is that telling us something different about their lived experience? Is that lived experience something that, that, that indicates that they were in more pain or, or not? Was it something benign? I mean, that's, I think, I guess I spend, I won't speak for Alex in this case, but I, I spend a lot of time kind of, of thinking about what those, those lived experiences might have been for a person that had some type of pathology. Yeah, that, that actually is something I was going to bring up. And you made me segue perfectly into it. A small research project I did working on a set of remains from Mexico had this very, um, this is um, kind of contemporary with the Aztec Empire. So 1400s, 1500s, right? And this individual had this serious uh, pathological condition impacting most of the skeletal remains that we had recovered. Um, and one of the questions that I had that I asked myself is like, what would this person's life would have been like? What would they would they have required care? And thinking about care in the archaeological record, you have an older individual with with pathologies, or you have even even just a very old individual. You you have to think about this person was required was requiring care was requiring someone else to you know help them to feed them to you know maybe help them get around. Um, and that's a really fascinating thing to think about in the archaeological record. It's such a human activity, right? Caring for your loved ones. And, you know, you can, you can kind of see that in the, in the bioarchaeological record. Yeah, I think that's why when you and I have both kind of moved into this historic realm, it's, it has been, we spent a lot of time talking about the different records and whether you know, records are not going to be 100% accurate. We know that, but it does give that insight as to you know somebody experiencing some some sort of illness or disease and now we know they're dead but there's nothing on their bones so what did they die from i don't we don't we can't answer that but we we like thinking about ways that we might be able to answer that or address that in a different way sometimes it's theoretical sometimes it's is this an appropriate you know population to work on doing some sort of testing to see if we can find microbes or some something that will tell us if they had a certain you know pathogen in their system at the time of death 
And again, it's, it's something I think everybody's different bioarchaeologists who do work on disease pathogens exist and they do really incredible work, really interesting work on a lot of diseases. And so I think it's, it's something that's worth considering in the historic record as well in different situations. Given that Christine and I both worked in Louisiana, one of the diseases that we have become intimately familiar with is yellow fever, which impacted thousands of people from the city's founding up until the early 1900s when it was pretty well eradicated, although it still is a problem. You cannot see yellow fever on skeletal remains. Um, And so one of the big populations we worked on actually all told didn't have that many kind of signs of poor health on their skeletal remains. So we were able to say, hey, maybe given that we know yellow fever was impacting this population at this time, maybe yellow fever would be something that could explain uh, kind of what we're looking at in the historical record and the bioarchaeological record. And we do have a lot of contextual information that goes along with Mm -hmm. that too. Like we can, we know that all these extra cemeteries were being opened because of the response to yellow fever. There's too many people dying at too fast of a rate. Where are they going to go? Okay, they're going to go there now. And so we know a lot of these cemeteries were open specifically to handle that overflow. And and so it, it was a good place to start. But I think what Alex found when he did all that research and did all that work was that actually, yeah, there is not, there's not a lot on these bones to explain some other major systemic stress on a lot of these people, which is kind of surprising. In biowork, you get a lot of pathology. <laughs> well, and this was a, this was a, a poor hospital. Uh, and it was a, so a cemetery associated with a poor hospital. You would think, given the circumstances of these people's lives, that they would potentially show some signs of, of poor health and of, of systemic issues. Kind of an interesting aside, though, that that same research, right, we were talking, kind of comparing the historical record to the bioarchaeological record. And in this case, the historical record helped us. And another major component of this research, she says this research that I did, it's this research that we did. I want to be very clear on that. It was my dissertation, and it would never have happened without her and Ryan. So and the, the publications are the three of us. So one of the things that the historical records didn't shed any light on was the pervasive postmortem examination that these individuals went through. So they were dissected and experimented upon after their death. And nowhere in the hospital records themselves is that recorded. Um, it's talked about elsewhere, and it's talked about that the this was a, a teaching hospital and that those activities happened. But in the actual hospital records, those numbers aren't there. You know, a lot, in the same hospital records that we get all this yellow fever data from, doesn't have any light on this other major thing going on in this hospital. So historical records are not perfect and they should be viewed as such. Very much so. And I will say we also have one big issue, which is sampling ish size issues. And I, I, I will just throw it out there. There's, this is not a comprehensive or probably we have a very, oh, what would be the right word? Um, well, it's a very biased sample. Thank you. Biased is the word. (laughs) (laughs) It's also a, it was a salvage. Most of it was salvage and and, um, kind of ad hoc recovery. And yeah, it's, it's very, you know, we know that there's at least one other cemetery that would have remains from the same context, the same hospital, the same population. And we don't even know the boundaries of the cemetery really that we're working with materials from. So it's a very biased sample. Again, uh, you know, this was a a poor hospital. 
And unfortunately, folks that were that died at poor hospitals were buried in cemeteries and those cemeteries don't get treated quite as well as as other cemeteries. So, you know, these are under roads now, under parking lots. You don't necessarily know when you're walking around the city that this is a, a large burial ground for for patients from this hospital. So uh, no, I think that's super interesting because it's there's a modern day connection to all of it. And there's it seems like your discipline is kind of always bridging or working between our modern day understanding of health, human skeletons, and then in the past and kind of trying to find it's a, it sounds like a really cool mystery or an exciting mystery, but you know, that's just my, my take so far. It's also frustrating because uh, a lot of the things we're seeing in historic new Orleans haven't necessarily improved in today's age, which is a, a sad reality of the world we live in. There's certainly a lot of parallels that, really wonderful bioarchaeologists that are thinking in really inventive and fascinating ways to try to talk about and connect some of these things too. So I think, although it's, it's, you know, in our field is maybe about 10 years old at this point, but uh, some of the concepts of structural violence, seeing inequality, seeing and how, how can we maybe start thinking about bioarchaeological material in a different way there, there's always these people who are you know, going to be thinking about new ways to use some of the information that people have gathered. And that, in that way, bioarchaeology, I think, is a really fascinating field for um, people who are interested in making those kinds of connections. As we're kind of ending here, what would you recommend for someone to do who's interested in bioarch, either books to read or something that you would would want to tell them if they were, are interested in bioarchaeology and becoming a bioarchaeologist? Ooh, that's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I think both Alex and I have had our, our run-ins with different experiences at different parts of the field. I would always give the advice to students that if it's something you're interested in and it's something that you feel strongly about, go for it. Any, any opportunities that are presented, you know, if you can work with a professor, you can spend some time in a lab, um, get an internship. And even if it's not something you think you're necessarily going to always do is like my total station experience. And I went back and worked in Greece, a place that I love, but I wasn't doing bio work. I was just doing you know, total station archeology span experience. And I just think it's a good idea to try to gain other skills that you don't know when they're going to become applicable, even in bio work. Absolutely. I, and for me, it, Going back to kind of my experience a little bit, uh, so my undergrad didn't have a skeletal collection. It didn't have even a teaching skeleton, and we didn't offer an osteology class. Right, the, the basic, the basic class. So I actually, I when I studied abroad, which I was fortunate enough to do, I took uh, osteology class, and that hooked me right there. But you know, and many universities are thankfully working to repatriate a bunch of their skeletal collections. And so I think it's also going to be important moving forward to work with new technologies, uh, digital technologies, uh, working with things that are kind of more ethically sourced, right? We, we have a, a, big, a big issue in the field that we are working with somebody, right? And it's always somebody and, and that person, and that's tricky. And so uh, working with plastic skeletons is not ideal because you, you do miss some, uh, but with the new kind of 3D printing technologies that are out there, um, and 3D scanning, we really can, it can make 
really amazing teaching collections available to people that might not have access to them uh, in person. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on and and chatting chatting with me. It's been really interesting just just hearing all all about this. And for folks who are interested in bioarchaeology, I hope this gets you excited and uh, enjoy it. But yeah, thank you guys for coming on. Uh, we just interviewed Dr. Alex Garcia Putnam and Christine Halling, who are both awesome bioarchaeologists. This is the part of the show where I tell you to rate and review the podcast because please, God, please do it. <laughs> and with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So, ladies and gents, you passed through the end of the episode and you are here for my joke, kind of. You're probably not happy about being here, but you're here nonetheless. So, Alex, Christine, I was incredibly surprised when the stationery store moved. I hate you, Connor. Uh, bad, bad. Right. I really like your punchline. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland. DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.